Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, November 2nd, 2012. Oh, interesting week. Next week's going to be quite the adventure, I think, with the uh, elections in the United States. And prophetic insights will be on heightened alert, I'm sure. for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And one of the kind of like unstated goals, so I'll state it, of listening to Fighting for the Faith is to help you get into a good church. Because the church that you attend matters. And uh, what's a good church? It's not necessarily a church that's hip, growing fast, that's got a lot of people that are coming to it, and there's a lot of exciting things going on. No, 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 no. That's not the standard uh, given in Scripture for a good church. In fact, if you want to know, like, the standard of a good church, you would have to look at, like, what's required of somebody who's supposed to be teaching and preaching in a church. So here's the idea is that so many people, they approach the concept of church attendance using a subjective standard for determining whether or not the church is a good church. You know, it could go something like this. Honey, we're going to go do some church shopping. Oh, that sounds great, dear. Um, So let's go to this church. We'll go to that church next week. And then then what happens is is so they attend the church, okay? And, you know, they're doing the the secret shopper thing, if you would. And so they attend the church, and and afterwards... uh, the, the guy says to his wife, well, honey, what'd you think? And, and how did it make, you know, what'd you feel about uh, this particular church? And, the, 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 you know, she might say something. Well, I felt like um, it was positive and upbeat. I liked the music. It wasn't too loud. It You know, and um, the people here seemed happy. I mean, I really liked the fact that we had people greeting us at the door. And, you know, it kind of reminded me of Walmart. You know, you walk into Walmart and, the, and there's that happy person just going, hey, how y'all doing? Welcome to Walmart. Can I get you anything? And, so, you know, it was great customer service. And, you know, boy, that, that sermon that the pastor preached, I mean, that sure was relevant. I've always wanted to learn how to balance my checkbook and how how to use a day planner. And so, you know, something like that, and you sit there and you go, well, wait, you know, um, what's the standard that they're measuring this by? What, you know, and you could tell that the standard that they're using in something like that, well, it's a subjective standard and it's a standard based upon consumer satisfaction. Okay. But see, biblically, 
the consumer satisfaction is not the determiner of whether or not you've got a good church. Okay. Um, so it, you know, it's, I know this is going to sound just heretical of me. Um, so if you don't have a Walmart greeter <laughs> at your particular congregation, don't feel bad. I, <laughs> you know, but be nice to people when they show up, you know, cause, uh, you know, understand this, that, uh, <clears throat> that it, the church that you attend, that if you have visitors that oftentimes that they're evaluating you subjectively, but here fighting at fighting for the faith, we're trying to get you to get out of the subjective consumeristic mindset when it comes to church and look at stuff that's like way more important, way more important. And namely, are you hearing the truth? Is the pastor proclaiming Christ, proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Is he rightly handling God's word? Because at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter if if they had a Walmart greeter, you know, at the entrance of the church, and if whether or not the information that you got during the sermon was relevant to your life. Who cares? The question is, was it true? And so let me give you a more objective standard and, and kind of reverse engineering here, if you would. In the, in the New Testament, there are three letters, epistles, that are considered pastoral epistles. And that is, is that they're dealing with the duties of elders and pastors and those who teach and are, are in positions of authority within a congregation. Okay, And when you look at what's supposed to be going on in these congregations, what these pastors and elders are supposed to be doing then you begin to get an objective standard set in your mind by which you can then say, oh, okay, a church should look like this. A pastor ought to be doing this. And if a church is not doesn't look like this and a pastor ain't doing that but doing the opposite of that, then objectively we can say, aha, this is probably not a good church. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Because so, let me kind of work this out for you. Okay, we're going to be looking at Titus, at the book of Titus, just you know here during the opening, and uh, and so if you have your Bible, open up to Titus chapter one, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to be reading from the ESV, that's the English Standard Version. If you're looking for a good faithful English translation, one that is readable and uh, really works very hard and diligently to be faithful to the original languages. I cannot recommend the ESV enough. In fact, uh, for years I taught at the NIV and it drove me crazy because um, after I learned the biblical languages, Greek and Hebrew, I found myself obnoxiously constantly correcting the NIV. And uh, and so it drove me crazy. And when the ESV came out, I was so excited because <laughs> finally I had an English translation that I can work with and where I wasn't constantly correcting it. And what I find interesting is sometimes where I'm tempted to correct the ESV, there's a note. There's like, you know, there'll be a footnote and you look at the footnote and you go, oh, well, <laughs> there's my correction right there. It's in the footnotes. It'll say, you know, alternate reading may, re- may be something like this. <laughs> It's like, ah, uh-huh. you see, good stuff. Anyway, um, <clears throat> Titus chapter 1, Paul writing to Titus, and here's what he says. To Titus, my true child in the common faith, in a common faith. That's verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and is the ch- and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer 
as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of the good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. And you go, ah, okay. So here's the question I have for you, okay? Based upon your listening to sermons by particular very popular leaders uh, in, in American evangelicalism, do they sound like this? Do they measure up to this objective standard? It's a great question. Are, do they teach the Word of God soundly to teach sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it? Yeah, we've got a problem here. But see, this is the objective standard. Now, I, I would like to throw in a cross-reference if I could. This cross-reference is found in Acts chapter 20. Kind of an interesting place to look, but it's it provides a good cross-reference with similar concepts and ideas. Acts chapter 20, and I'm going to read starting at verse 17. And this is Paul's address to the church at to Ephesus. He's on his way to uh, to Jerusalem. Okay, this is before his arrest. So he's uh, traveling, he's getting ready to head out. He's spending some last time, his last opportunity to spend with the, uh, the folks, uh, the Christians, the brothers, and the sisters there in Ephesus. And this is kind of his parting shot. And there's some very interesting things that he says here that have implications to the pastoral ministry. Okay, so I'm going to start at verse 17. Acts chapter 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and in faith, and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and, and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God." And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Okay, so here we've got shepherds or pastors, overseers, to care for the flock of God, right, which was purchased with God's own blood. And that's a great statement, by the way, uh, that that uh, that this was, the church was purchased with the blood of God. That tells you who Jesus is, right? <clears throat> now, verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own, from among your own selves will arise men who speak twisted things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So therefore, be alert, 
remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among those who are being sanctified. Okay, so here's the idea. Paul here talking to, addressing really the overseers, the pastors of the churches in Ephesus, right? Telling you to, telling them to care for God's sheep to protect the flock from fierce wolves, warning them about those who would rise up within their own midst, who would uh, teach twisted things and draw away disciples after themselves rather than make disciples of Jesus. Okay, That's a great cross-reference that tells you about, well, the job of the church. The job of the church, the job of pastors, is to care for Christ's sheep, which was which these sheep were purchased with the very blood of God in Christ, right? Okay, teaching the full counsel of the word of God. These are things, these are objective standards that we can look to and say, this is what ought to be happening in church, okay? So back to Titus. Titus, this is our objective standard. <clears throat> Titus chapter 1, verse 10. There are many Okay, so let me back up. Okay, he, the the overseer, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate. They are empty talkers and they are deceivers. Notice the cross-reference here, right? With Acts, this works. Especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Now, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Well, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. Hmm. So one of the things you ought to be hearing in good churches is sound doctrine and the rebuke of those who are teaching falsely. Hmm. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. To the, but to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith and love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respect to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves, bondservants are to be dismissive to their own masters. In everything they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that everything may be adorned, uh, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, 
Let no one disregard you. Hmm. So, if we take these pastoral epistles as, well, as giving us an objective standard by which we can judge whether or not we are in a good church or a bad church, I ask you the question, is your pastor teaching that which is in accord with sound doctrine? Or is he drawing away disciples after himself, teaching twisted things by twisting God's word? Is he proclaiming Christ, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins, and good works that flow from this this faith? Or are they off in la-la land? You see, there are objective standards in scriptures by which we are to determine whether or not a particular congregation is sound or unsound, healthy or unhealthy teaching the truth or teaching heresy, leading us and pointing us to the biblical Jesus or pointing us away from Christ to a false Christ, a false gospel, and a false religion that has all the appearances of Christianity but is completely vacuous and vacated of any Christian and biblical meaning. These are treacherous times, and the devil seeks to destroy you and to send you into hell. The church that you attend matters. Trust me when I tell you, You want to be in a church where you're being fed God's word, being cared for, and being taught sound doctrine. If you're not, you are in danger. You are in in grave danger, danger of the fires of hell, danger of being deceived by the devil and believing falsely regarding who Christ is and what he's done for you. All of this matters, and this is why fighting for the faith exists. So something to think about. When you're determining whether or not you have you're attending a good church or a bad church. Don't rely on your feelings. Rely on an objective standard and take out the objective standard that we can find in, in Titus chapters 1 and 2. And take a look to see if the church that you're attending truly measures up to this objective biblical standard. If your pastor is living up to these objective biblical standards. If he isn't, you might consider challenging him or admonishing him to repent. If he won't, then maybe you should consider finding a good church. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. We have a few minutes before our first break, and I'm going to be playing. We got a Patricia King gang update. And um, have you ever heard of prophetic tattoo interpretation? <laughs> Yeah, this is a prime example of uh, of somebody who's been led away from sound doctrine and is wandering off into mythologies. We'll be playing. By the way, we put this up at the Museum of Idolatry if you want to see this video. But we're we're going to be doing a, a segment regarding prophetic um, tattoo interpretation, and then what we'll do is we'll take our break, and then we'll, we'll come back. We're going to be listening to a segment from uh, a recent sermon. Uh, preached by Perry Noble. Perry Noble, who's a rock star in the seeker-driven movement and somebody who we uh, take a look at regularly here at Fighting for the Faith. He's currently preaching through a series that he calls a women's series, and it's about Adam and Eve, supposedly. But uh, I want to point this out. There's there's a funky thing that he's doing in this sermon series, and that is is that his the biblical text that he's preaching from, he's not actually teaching what the text teaches. He's using it to kind of be basically be a jumping point so that he can talk about the things that he thinks are important and and make the points that he wants to make rather than the points that God's word word makes. Something you definitely don't want to do. And for those of you who are fans of uh, 
of Al Mohler and uh, the, the, the faculty at uh, Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. They've recently concluded their ex- expositors conference. They, they had a conference of expositors, you know, talking about expository preaching and the importance of that. Albert Mohler gave two uh, general session lectures. Both of them are fantastic, but we're not going to be listening to Albert Mohler today. We're going to be listening to his uh, second-in-commander, uh, uh, Russell Moore. Uh, he delivered a fantastic lecture on h- how Christ is the epicenter of Scripture, and this is really needs to be the focus of all of our preaching and teaching. And boy, w- did he do a bang-up job. And so that's what we're going to be sharing with you in hour number two today. So that's going to round out our program. Make yourself comfortable. We have a, a, a little bit of ground to cover today, not too much as we wind up uh, our uh, week here at Fighting for the Faith. And with that, uh, here's our Patricia King Gang update music. So, um, have you ever considered joining a ministry team that's sent out across the world to share the love of Christ by in, um, engaging in prophetic tattoo and uh, piercing interpretation? <laughs> well, uh, here's Doug Addison of the Patricia King Gang to explain um, his special and unique ministry about tattoo and piercing, body piercing interpretation. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, hang on. Here we go. Hi, my name is Doug Addison. I'm really excited to introduce to you my latest online training website, Prophetic Tattoo and Piercing Interpretation. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. By the way, this has absolutely nothing to do with biblical evangelism, of going out and proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Absolutely nothing. Nothing to do with it. There's no such thing. Very similar to dream interpretation, in which we use the prophetic gift to help people see how God might be speaking to them through their body art. <laughs> oh, man. How does that saying go? There's a, there's a sucker born every minute. Really? Uh, could you imagine walking up to somebody and saying, you know, hey, listen, you know, God's speaking to me. I have the gift of prophetic tattoo and body piercing and body art interpretation, and I'm thinking God is trying to talk to you through your tattoo. In case you don't know me, I'm an expert in the area of dream interpretation. Really? How do you become an expert in the area of dream interpretation? I'm curious. How do you become an expert? I mean, do you go to school for it? they have a PhD in this stuff? Is, is this one of the courses you know at, at offered you know in at Oxford you know, in their different PhD programs? I'm curious. How do you become an expert on this? I've interpreted well over twenty five thousand dreams. I really you kept track. I've been an outside the box prophetic minister for over twenty years. <laughs> outside of the box. Yeah. Also. An outreach specialist. Uh huh. Yeah, uh, an out of the box prophetic outreach specialist. Right. I've trained thousands of dream and prophetic teams that go all over the world sharing God's love in some of the most unusual places. That's frightening. And I've noticed this is that people everywhere have tattoos. Did you know that over a billion people on earth have tattoos or piercings? No way. I was on an outreach uh, over eight years ago and I did my first uh, tattoo interpretation. And boy, it was an amazing response. And since then, I've studied it thoroughly. I've uh, also interpreted thousands of tattoos, and I've trained hundreds of people to do it. And I know this might sound controversial to some people, but yet some others are saying, wow, it's about time someone did this, right? I'm not encouraging people to get tattoos. <laughs> controversial it just sounds convoluted. You're, you're wrong word. Especially with this training. But what I want to offer is the ability to recognize the prophetic meaning behind it. Of course, we're going to use the Holy Spirit as our guide. 
<laughs> right. But also, uh, if you don't have a tattoo, is to help you to understand people who do. And this might even be your own kids. It's very similar to the symbolism in the parables that Jesus taught. So who knew? I mean, it's some pagan walking down the street. He's got a bunch of tattoos. He maybe got an arm sleeve going on there. You could stop him and you could just interpret it using the Holy Spirit, of course. And it would be just like, you know, how Jesus told parables. There's symbolic meaning in the designs. There's a significance in the placement on the uh, where they put it on the body, whether they know it or not. And also we use the prophetic gift to open people up to talking more about God. And it's an amazing way to connect with people. Uh, once you get into an encounter, uh, people open up their entire life to you. You know, I'm not an expert in the area of tattoos, but I am an expert in the area of hearing God and training people. Yeah, self-proclaimed at that, I'm sure. So I want to share with you in this online class uh, how I do it, how God, some inside secrets, what God has taught me. And also, uh, I want to show you a video right now. The best way to explain it is to see me in action it's a short video clip of me doing this out on Venice Beach. Here, take a look. Yeah, oh boy. <laughs> Let me grab some popcorn. So there he is with his wife walking down Venice Beach. I actually have been hearing God all my life but didn't know it. I knew things. <laughs> I was hearing God my whole life and I had no, I just didn't know. Wow. I'd have dreams. And then I went out and started uh, practicing dream interpretation and use... Uh, the prophetic gifts to reach people that are way outside the church. And um, I get a word of knowledge for them. You know, just that one thing that would flash in my spirit, and I'd speak at it. And uh. usually they say, what are you, a psychic? And I say, oh, no. Then out on Venice Beach here, we, we start doing tattoo readings one day. Not that we are, are advocating tattoos, but we notice that everyone is walking by us. A lot of them have tattoos, and they value them. And so we use the... See, by putting that music behind this these words that he's speaking, it makes it sound like so authentic and like, wow, this has really got to be the word, the, the move of God. Same understanding of parables that we use for dreams when we, when we tell the person why they got the tattoo. The very first one I did on Venice Beach here, the guy went into tears and it, he was so moved. He didn't even realize that God was speaking to them. <laughs> so, I mean, if you uh, have that feeling deep down inside of your heart that um, God is speaking to people through their tattoos, you know, what better thing to do than take an online course that you can pay money for uh, so that you can engage in prophetic tattoo and piercing interpretation. Of course, that does require you to live in a place where most of the time people are not bundled up. I think that uh, uh, tattoo... And body art interpretation would be very difficult if you, like, lived in Alaska or something where most of the year that people are, are having to wear long sleeves and, and pants and things like that. It it's much, works much better if you can, like, live in South America or in one of those tropical regions where most of the time people have to wear tank tops uh, and uh, shorts and uh, flip-flops because then you can actually in, 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 prophetically interpret their <sighs> tattoos. And what is it that gets distracted? You know, what, what, what do we lose in all of this? A, a proclamation of Christ and him crucified for our sins and sound doctrine in God's word. Now we're just chasing after bizarre ideas and blaming it on God the Holy Spirit. And God the Holy Spirit has absolutely nothing, nothing to do with prophetic tattoo and body art interpretation. 
Good night. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button or follow me on Twitter. My name there at pirate Christian. We will be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at 
at worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net, situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Do you find it hard to shop for the geek in your life? Well, if so, we have got a fantastic new featured advertiser for you to visit. It's Think Geek. This is a well-thought-out and hilarious gift store. And what you need to do is visit our website first, piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek, and then click on the ad banner, and then a portion of your purchase will actually go to support Pirate Christian Radio. Trust me, these gifts are hilarious, from wacky office gifts to Star Trek paraphernalia to Star Wars stuff, anything that would really kind of light up the life of the geek in your life. Trust me, you'll love it. They're smart funny and the geek in your life will really enjoy them again piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek all right we're back uh warning beware of somebody who says that he's an expert at hearing god if you're an expert at hearing God, well, that means that you're an expert at understanding what God has revealed in his written word, not voices in your head. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our famous friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. We cannot do what we do without your support. So I want to thank you all for making this resource available to all of us, <laughs> me included. So, all right, moving along. Time for a Perry Noble update. Oh, really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flair. What effect a little smoke is with a dash of hocus pocus and the scent of burning sulfur in the air. I'm a fraud, a hoax, a charlatan, a joke, but they love me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I do, what I do, as long as I do it with a flair. And it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say, as long as, as I, I say it with a flair. First I rattle off a ready stock of gibberish and poppycock and fix you with my best hypnotic stare. Ooh. With my moans and groans and soporific tones, they have cheered me everywhere. For it really doesn't matter what I say, what I say. I sell it when I tell it with a sheer. 
All right. So that's our uh, Perry Noble <clears throat> update music. All right. So uh, Perry Noble is currently preaching a woman's series called Eve and Adam. Notice it's not Adam and Eve. Now, which is weird. And here's the reason why. Is that if you're going to preach about Adam and Eve, well, what's the, the important aspect of that story? Okay. Well, the important aspect, well, there's several. Number one, God created them. They didn't evolve from grandma and grandpa amoeba. Um, God created Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve were our first parents. And they rebelled against God, and in Adam, all human beings have fallen into sin. And are, then, you know, every descendant of Adam and Eve, you know, d- d- descended from them naturally are born dead in trespasses and sins. And then Jesus Christ is our second Adam. So these, I mean, that's really the importance of this whole story. The gospel is so, I mean, it's, it's directly hooked into the story of Adam and Eve. Now, what I'm going to be doing, I'm going to be playing a, a fairly long segment from uh, the first uh, sermon in the series, um, it, you know, basically called, uh, it's called Eve and Adam, Two Lies That Women Believe. This is the part one from it. I'm going to play a large segment because I want you to hear what he does to this biblical text in the context of his sermon and point out how he doesn't actually teach the text. You know, he, this is a very clever technique used by Bible teachers, and it goes something to this effect. It, it, in fact, uh, uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of uh, Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado, he calls this uh, the heresy two-step. So what you do is you read a biblical text. And, you know, and then what happens is, is that, you know, you make it look like you're going to, quote, stand on the text. But what you do while no one is looking, you engage in a little bit of distraction, a little bit of misdirection. And then you back up from the text and then you move to the left or to the right so that you can shimmy away from it and say whatever it is that you want to say. And that's what Perry Noble does in this sermon. He's teaching a women's series important because earlier in the year he had a men's series and but you know and so when you see what he does with this text i mean no sooner does he read it that he makes an important statement and then immediately departs from the text this is not biblical teaching by the way so without any further ado here is uh, perry noble from part one of even adam two lies that women believe here we go it's so funny i um i put a question out on twitter and facebook the other day And I asked men this question. I said, the thing I do not understand about women is fill in the blank. And for women, I had this question. The toughest thing about being a woman is blank. It was really funny because the men, and you can go on my Facebook page and read the comments. They're all there. The the men gave me about 55 comments, I think, total. The women, there were 250 and counting, like... And here's what I, here's what I here's what I've take took away from the men and the women. There were some there were some funny comments. There were some um, really serious comments. But the thing that men don't seem to understand about women is why they're so emotional all the time. Now that's what that was. And and the thing that women don't understand about women is why they're so emotional all the time. Because can we can we agree, women and men, that women are a little bit more emotional than men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like saying the Pope is a little bit more Catholic than most Catholic. Like, like women are emotional. And, and there's some women that struggle with that because women, the, the, the range of emotions that you can deal with in a day is unbelievable. 
In fact, I, I, I found a movie clip that I think every woman here will be able to relate to. This clip describes nearly every woman that you know. And men, there's a man in this clip too, and you have the same reaction to her as he has. He just doesn't understand her. If you saw the movie Tangled, um, there's a clip where Rapunzel, yeah, I feel that in the room, right? There's a, there's a clip where Rapunzel escapes from the castle and she's emotionally processing out loud her decision. Check this out. I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I did this. <laughs> Mother would be so furious. That's okay. I mean, what she doesn't know won't kill her, right? Oh my gosh. This would kill her. Horrible daughter. I'm going back. I am never going to I am a despicable human being. Best ever. Okay, I'm gonna point something out here. Okay. Notice number one, Perry Noble didn't begin with a biblical text. He began with well his his experience. You know, well, you know, in my experience, women are you know are more emotional and da, 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 you know all this kind of stuff, right? Now he's playing a movie clip from um you know, from a movie. Uh, you know, okay, and what does this have to do with the Bible? Nothing. See, he's not actually crafting a biblical message. He's trying to come up with something relevant to keep the crowds coming. And he needs to create the impression that he's actually teaching a biblical text. So that's why he's going to get into a biblical text here in a minute. But already you should be going, what is he doing? This is not the job of a pastor, not according to the objective standard that we read in Titus earlier uh, in this episode. Right, right. <clears throat> you know, I can't help but notice you seem a little at war with yourself here. Just give an invitation to go home, right? <clears throat> now, ladies, you you felt like that during the course of the day. Maybe the course of your day today, you've, you've felt like that. And men, you've been scratching your head going, I don't know what she's doing right now, and I'm married to her, and so I don't understand... Men don't understand women. Women sometimes don't understand women. And here's, here's, here's I think, one of the, the main problems. Ladies, I think, and I'm not even saying there's an easy solution to this. Okay, stop right there. Did you hear those words? I think. I think. I think. Hmm. Pastor's not supposed to be preaching what he thinks. Pastor's supposed to be preaching God's word, what God has said. Big difference, huge difference. So if you have a pastor up there basically pontificating what he thinks, he's not doing his job. He's falling short woefully of the objective standard laid out in Scripture for what a pastor is to be doing. But I'm, I think the problem many times is we let the emotional reign over the spiritual. And we let the way we feel control everything in our lives. And I think the secret or, or the, the thing we got to wrestle with, and once again, this is not an easy solution. Just because it's right doesn't mean it's easy. I think what we've got to wrestle with today is how do we let, how do we make the emotional submissive to the spiritual? 
And I believe the answer is going to be found in this week and next week because um, I believe one of the reasons that women deal with the range of emotions that you deal with is because culture constantly lies to you. One of the things you've got to understand is whether you're a Christian or not or whether you even believe in this stuff or not, we live in a world at war. And there's an enemy of, of Christ, his name's Satan. He hates your guts and he's coming after you on a consistent basis. And his top weapon, his, his nuclear weapon, his weapon of mass destruction, if you will, are the lies that he speaks to you. And this week and next week, we're going to examine two of the biggest lies that I believe with all my heart that women buy into. Two of the biggest lies. Lie number one this week. Lie number two next week. And ladies, I believe, I believe if we can discover God's truth to combat the lies that we're going to expose, I believe it will help you really walk more confidently in your relationship with Christ. And maybe, maybe for many here, establish. So at this point, this is all just based on a hunch. He thinks that there's two lies that are women, that women are listening to. They're from the culture and ultimately from Satan, and he believes, he thinks, he's pretty sure that if we can combat these lies, that it'll somehow lead to a deeper relationship with Jesus. Huh. Hmm. Yeah, my question is, you know, kind of like with uh, this uh, Addison guy regarding the tattoo uh, interpretations, are you an expert on this? Where? I mean... I mean, I'm glad you have these thoughts, but have you field tested them to see if your results actually work? A relationship with Christ. Law number one, law number one that, that really does play on our emotions. Law number one that women buy into is this. I'm not good enough. Okay, so according to the keen observation skills of Perry Noble, <clears throat> The, yeah, uh, there's a lie out there that women are buying into that I'm not good enough. Okay. Um, hmm. Do you have a biblical text that addresses this lie? And um, by the way, Genesis chapter 3 actually doesn't address this. Watch what he does. I'm not good enough. Now, sure, there's some men that buy into this. Emotion, but we, we've already dealt with the men back in the spring. Remember, you can go watch all those messages. There are ladies here today that feel like when it comes to a certain aspect of your life that you just don't measure up. Um, that might be healthy, not unhealthy. Let me give you an example, okay? Um, what is a sin? Scripture just def- def- defines a sin. Here is what it says. You know, it basically is falling short of the glory of God. Falling short, okay? Sin is an archery term, okay? And the idea is, is that you missed the mark. You hit, you didn't hit the target. You didn't hit the bullseye. So, um, so the question is, okay, when I look at my life, you know, for instance, using an objective standard like the Ten Commandments, um, what does it reveal? Hmm. That... I'm missing the mark that I'm falling short that um that I'm not good and by the way this is a good thing and not a bad thing and why is this a good thing because see that's the purpose of the law in fact let me point you out to point this out to you Romans chapter 3 okay um I read this passage yesterday but I'm going to keep reading here because I, there's a piece I want to get to so we'll keep it in context Romans chapter 3 verse 9 so what then are we Jews any better off well no Not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. 
No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In, in their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Yeah, see, well, we, none of us measure up, right? Not one of us. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and so that the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified or be declared righteous in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So here's the idea. The law has a purpose, and its purpose isn't to save us. The purpose of the law is to give us a knowledge of our sin so that we can know our sinful condition and understand our need for a Savior. So, in other words, it's a good thing that we come to the knowledge that we're not measuring up, that we're not good enough. That's in in some cases, a very important and positive conclusion to come to. Because when you come to that conclusion regarding God's standard, you realize, I need a Savior. I need help. I need Jesus. I need to be forgiven. I need the shed blood of Christ. Ha ha! See? This is a good thing, not a bad thing. But uh, <clears throat> remember, Perry Noble here isn't really preaching God's word. He's preaching his own observations and the things that he thinks are going to be helpful, but they're not. You're just not good enough. Now, we'll we'll go into the story more next week, but this week, let me just kind of highlight Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and the story of Adam and Eve. And if you're here today and you're a non-Christian, maybe you kind of wrestle with, I don't really know if Adam and Eve were real people. I just want to kind of put my cards out and tell you, I believe they were real. Here's the reason I believe they're real. Okay, now listen to this argument of his. This is actually a solid argument. It, this is the exact right argument for this particular case. How do you know Adam and Eve are real? What Perry Noble's about to say here, and I want to give him props for this because this is the right answer. Because Jesus, now Jesus, the guy that rose from the dead, paid for our sins, he talked about Adam and Eve. And he didn't talk about them like they were mythical figures. He talked about them like they were literal. I mean, they, he talked about them from a historical perspective. And Jesus rose from the dead. So anybody, that they can kill him and he rises from the dead. I just believe anything that guy says. So I'm going with Jesus on the whole Adam and Eve thing. Okay, absolutely brilliant, well thought out. Well argued, and he's right. That's I, one of the few times you're going to hear me going right on, Perry. You're he's that's that's exactly right. Okay. The Bible says in Genesis one that God created mankind. He created man and woman. In fact, the Bible specifically says, and it's in your bullets in Genesis one twenty seven, that God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them. Male and female, He created them. But in Genesis 2, we get a more specific, detailed story of the creation story. And in Genesis 2, it goes into the whole thing where God said, it is not good for a man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And he puts, he puts Adam to sleep, and then he makes the woman. And it's the first time that God created anything that living that he didn't create it from the dust of the earth. He created men from the dust of the earth. He created animals from the dust of the earth. But for women... You're special. You're, 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 you are uniquely designed by God. He took a rib from the man, fashioned it, created Eve. We don't know how long it took. We just know he custom designed Eve. And then when he brought Eve to life, her first relationship was not with Adam. 
It was with God, Adam sleeping. Her first relationship is with God. Her identity is found in a relationship with God. And then, oh boy. Okay, now this is this is a little bit tortured, okay? Because here's what he's doing. All right? Let me in fact, let me um let me read the passage to you and show you what he's up to. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So then the Lord said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens that brought them and brought them to the man to see what they would call what he would call them. And whatever uh, the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a suitable helper for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man, and the man said, This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, here's what's going on. So he's, Perry Noble has taken this passage, and he's decided to read between the lines and make theological points that are not in this text, nor are they made anywhere else in the Bible. Okay, So here's the idea. So the Lord caused Adam to fall into a sleep, Okay, so Adam's asleep, God makes the woman, and therefore there's this period of time where she has a, quote, personal relationship with God without Adam around because he's still asleep, and then God brings her to, so her identity is in this personal relationship with God. This is very torturous at this point because he's basically reading into the in between spaces, theology that's, um, well, it's not in the text, nor are these implications drawn out anywhere else. So he's engaging in a form of theological or doctrinal eisegesis here. Let me back it up so that you can hear it. And I don't even know why he makes the point necessarily because he's, uh, he's about to finish this text altogether and launch into everything else that comes out of his own mind and nothing from the biblical text. Let me continue. Her first relationship was not with Adam. It was with God, Adam sleeping. Her first relationship is with God. Her identity is found in a relationship with God. And then she brings you know, Eve to Adam and then there's fruit and nakedness and that whole thing in Genesis 2. Woo-hoo, love that. Okay. Genesis 3, though, it gets crazy. Because the Bible says the serpent, the enemy, comes to Eve and says this. Did God really say, did God really say that you can't eat fruit from that tree? Because there was one tree that God said you shouldn't eat, don't eat fruit from that tree. And Eve starts to have a conversation with the serpent. And they start going back and forth. And all of a sudden, I think the insecurity in Eve comes to light because... Okay, that was the important thing. Now, point this out. He's not reading the text. He's hijacked the narrative. He's in control of how it's being told. And the important words were, I think her insecurity came to light. Huh. Okay. Let me back that up so that you can hear what's going on. The I think her insecurity. Who in church history has mentioned Eve's insecurity? 
Nobody. Where did he get this from? Not from the biblical text. Watch what he does again. Just three, though, it gets crazy because the Bible says the serpent, the enemy, comes to Eve and says this. Did God really say? Did God really say that you can't eat fruit from that tree? Because there was one tree that God said you shouldn't eat, you don't eat fruit from that tree. And Eve starts to have a conversation with the serpent. And they start going back and forth. And all of a sudden, I think the insecurity in Eve comes to light because this is, this is what I believe. This is what I believe she started thinking. God's holding out on me. This is what I believe she started thinking. God's holding out on me. Good night. Where are you getting any of this? Well, it's coming from... Now he's just preaching what he thinks happened without any indicators in the text to say any of this. Listen. There's something that I don't have. And she completely lost her identity in her relationship with God. And she began to focus on the one thing that she perceived that she needed that she did not have. And this is where I believe that the emotional began to take control of the spiritual. And Eve gave in to the way she felt rather than the facts found in God's word. And she goes and she gets the fruit and she eats it. And we've been paying for it ever since. Because she, she bought into the law. This is what Satan deceived her and said, you know what? The way you are right now, you're not good enough. And he led her to find her identity and what she didn't have rather than what God had blessed her with. Now, ladies, I think there's some places that he comes at us today. None of y'all have had a conversation. Now, there's the transition. So now he's done teaching the text, and now he's going to officially transition into his own ideas. Now, I'm going to circle back in just a little bit. I want to let Perry uh, teach for just a little bit longer. I'm going to circle back and point you to the fact this text is about Jesus. Okay, Genesis 3 is ultimately about Christ and sets the whole tone for us understanding the Bible and what's going on in it. But Perry is not going to allow a text about Jesus to get in the way of his good ideas. Conversation um, in your backyard with a snake about an apple tree. And we don't even know it was an apple. We'll just kind of say it was an apple tree. But I think there's some areas that he commonly tempts women with in regards to you not feeling good enough. Coincidentally, these are the six, actually seven. We're going to put in another blank. There are seven areas that women typically find their identity in, and Satan's going to attack every one of these areas on a consistent basis. So we're going to write some of these down if you're a note taker. Letter A, your appearance. Your appearance. Now, ladies, I need you to help me if this next statement is true, and you just help me by saying amen, okay? Okay, what does your appearance have to do with the story of Adam and Eve? Answer absolutely nothing. He just said, I think it was her insecurity at play. And so now he's going to, he's going to, he's going to build off of his ideas that are not in the biblical text. And now talk about ways in which women, women just don't feel like they measure up. And one of their ways that they, women just don't feel like they measure up is in their appearance. This isn't biblical teaching. The purpose of the reading of Genesis, he didn't actually read it. The, he just, he just, referenced the story and made his own points, made sure to say, I think that what was going on here was so that he can create the impression that this is biblical teaching and it's not. Okay. Genesis chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? 
And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you will die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They flat out disobeyed God. Flat out disobeyed him. Okay. Hosea chapter 6 makes this very clear. Hosea chapter 6 verse 7 says this, But like Adam, this is Israel, like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Hosea 6 7 makes it clear. Adam transgressed a covenant. This was an agreement, a command. They transgressed, right? Verse 8. So they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. By the way, did you notice here that it tells us what Eve was thinking? It doesn't say anything about her being feeling insecure. At all. She saw that the fruit was good for food and able to make one wise, and so she ate it, right? So they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, Well, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, Well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15 is the first prophecy and promise of the Messiah the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. This sets the tone for all of Scripture because from this moment forward, we're following a particular human genetic bloodline that will lead us to the seed of the woman, the virgin-born Son of God, Jesus Christ, who on the cross by his death crushes the head of the serpent. And because he rose again bodily from the grave on the third day, ends up ultimately having his heel bruised, even though it looked like it was a mortal wound. It only turned out to be a bruising of his heel, right? So this passage points us to Christ. That's what this passage is all about. This isn't about feeling insecure or that your appearances aren't measuring up or any of those silly things at all. In fact, we even have good theological uh, understanding of what's going on in the Garden of Eden from, uh, from the writings of Paul in the, uh, in the New Testament. For instance, Romans chapter 5, verse 14, talking about death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And then he goes on in length to tell us about the second Adam, Christ. And you can find this in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, you know, uh, for in Adam all die, but all in Christ all shall be made alive. 
Um, 1 Corinthians 15.45, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, shall be a life-giving, uh, shall be a living being. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. So the idea here is, is that um, the, all of this points us to Christ, and this tells us of our human condition, how we came to be in such misery and, and under, the, under the reign of sin, death, and the devil, right? And the ultimate solution is Christ and him crucified for our sins. But that's not what Perry Noble's going to preach about. No, he's going to now talk about insecurity, yeah, believing the lies of Satan and telling you that you're not pretty and things like that. If it's, if it's true, so far I'm batting a thousand on this one. I just want to get kind of... Ladies, it's, this is every campus. It's not about looking pretty. It's about feeling pretty. Amen. See, you're out there. See men, you're like, what? I don't understand. Like, I, hey, I didn't get it either. I remember my wife came out. We're going on date night. She came out and she was dressed in an outfit. And y'all, she was smoking hot. I'm talking Dang. I mean, I'm, whoo, praise the Lord. I like, I, that's what went through my mind. It just, I'm a man. So, and it's okay. It's not sinful. It's my wife. All right. So, I mean, I've never heard a pastor talk about that before. Well, maybe you've never, never had a happy pastor. All right. I mean, I'm, I'm so, I mean, I was, whoo. All right. Uh, who's he preaching about? Not Christ. So, she came out, she looked good. And man, I don't know if you've ever got frustrated with this. Cause I said, I said, you look awesome. And she was like, thanks. I'll try that again. And I was like, baby, baby, you really do look beautiful. And she said, I'm glad you feel that way. I was like, all right, we need to talk. I'm not understanding. I'm giving you a compliment. And she told me, she said, Perry, tonight, I just don't feel pretty. And what does this have to do with this biblical text? Absolutely nothing. Men, we don't really struggle with that. I've never rolled up on another dude in my life, and he's got his head down. He's kind of crying a little bit. Hey, man, what's wrong? Man, I just don't feel pretty. Like, that's... Can we be honest? That's just never happened. But women, a lot of you, even today, you look pretty. I mean, you really do, but you don't feel pretty. And you know why you don't feel pretty? Because the world is constantly hitting you with advertisements, telling you how ugly you are. And if you had that particular product, that you would feel better about yourself. And thousands and even millions of dollars have been spent on that. And ladies, let's just admit today, it's not working. Because there's some days, no matter what you do, you don't feel pretty. (laughs) Man. I mean, talk about an adventure and missing the point. So I'm looking at the <clears throat> the study guide for this, and uh, it, this is real simple. So lie number one of the devil is apparently I'm not good enough, and this is supposedly based upon Genesis, and it's not. And then he goes on to talk about the six things that women base this idea that I'm not good enough on. So the first one is their appearance. The second is their house. Apparently, uh, let me read to you from the study guide. That housework is never done. As I sit writing this, the sink is full of dishes. The floors are too dirty to go barefoot and the bed is unmade. We dream of the rooms that we see on the home and gardening channel, but forget that they're not 
not reality. So see, you're not measuring up because your house isn't living up the home and gardening channel. And then you got kids, you know, how often our kids perform and behave and feels like a direct reflection on our parenting, but kids go through their own struggles and they say the darndest things and so forth. And we compare ourselves to other families, but we don't see the inner workings of them. They're likely just as crazy as our own. And then you got relationships, you know, single people and think people like that. And then you got your career and religion and your past and all this kind of stuff. And all of these are just the lies of the devil saying you're not good enough. What does this have to do with Adam and Eve and the story of Genesis? Well, in reality, very little. Very little. But I would point this out. And that is, is that all of these struggles that are described here are the, are the fruit and consequences of our sin. And the story of Adam and Eve tells us where our sin came from. And the solution to our sin is the promised seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. So rather than preaching Christ, um, well, Perry Noble has gone off into lunacy land because he would rather teach what he thinks, based on his own observation and experience, what he thinks was really going on in that text. Because he thinks that you know what was going on was that you know poor Eve, she it was her insecurity just coming to light. Good gravy. This isn't biblical teaching, and it's not Christ-centered preaching at all. It's narcissistic and eisegetical. Yeah, Perry Noble's another one of the narcissistic eisegetes out there. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We're going to close off the week with a good lecture. It's not a sermon, but it's a lecture on how Christ is the epicenter of Scripture from the Expositors Conference that just finished up this week. Don't want to miss it. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. The holiday travel season is now upon us. It came out of nowhere, didn't it? But listen, despite the fact that it comes up so quick, the last thing you want to do is pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. That's why you want to utilize Pirate Christian Radio's longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, for all of your holiday travel needs. Visit our website first, though, piratechristianradio.com forward slash 
cheap. And you'll find a promo code there that'll help you save an additional $15 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Write down the promo code, then click on the ad banner and book your holiday travel uh, arrangements uh, using their website. Very easy to use, very inexpensive. You save an additional $15. And by visiting our website first and then writing down that promo code, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. So again, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner and save lots of money on your holiday travel needs. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to be listening to a good lecture from the recently concluded Expositors Summit at Southern Theological Seminary, Southern Baptist in Louisville, Kentucky. And oddly enough, we're not going to be listening to Albert Muller's um, lectures, maybe on future editions of Fighting for the Faith. I wanted to start with a <clears throat> good Christ-centered um, lecture first. Not that Albert Muller's are. Ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon isn't a sermon. It's a lecture about sermonizing. <laughs> the name of it is a, Christo- a Christological Epicenter in Preaching. And this is a lecture delivered by Russell Moore, one of the generals of uh, Albert Muller at Southern Theological Seminary. Uh, from his the recently concluded Expositors Summit held there, which was a fantastic event. I've been listening to the lectures and really enjoying what I'm hearing. But I chose Russell Moore over Albert Muller because this gives us the nuts and bolts underpinning of the concept on why your pastor needs to be preaching Christ from every single biblical text. And Russell Moore is going to make that point from Jesus' preaching itself and Jesus' handling of the biblical text. So, in fact... Rather than tell you about it, I'm going to let Russell Moore do the heavy lifting and hard work here. Um, So let me kill the music. Without any further ado, here is Russell Moore, a Christological epicenter in preaching. This will give you more objective standards that you should be listening for in your pastor. Is he preaching Christ from every biblical text? Well, Russell Moore thinks he ought to be, and here's the reason why. Here we go. Well, good afternoon. Name is Russell Moore. I'm good to glad to be with you all, and I'd like for us to spend a little bit of time talking about Christ-focused, Christ-centered preaching. And as we do that, would you turn your Bibles, have them with you, to Luke chapter four, Luke chapter four, and I'd like to start reading, beginning with verse fourteen, Luke four fourteen, and read on down through verse twenty-two. And the Scripture says this. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. 
And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us uh, attention this afternoon as we look to these issues of preaching and proclaiming and teaching, counseling from your word. We pray, Father, that you would uh, enable us to, to think on these things and to encourage one another uh, toward faithfulness. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I am not a very cynical person, but I have a firm conviction that Chuck E. Cheese is a racket. And I have for a long time. And for whatever reason, it has this magical hold upon children of all sorts. Doesn't matter whether they've ever seen any advertising of Chuck E. Cheese. Doesn't matter whether they've ever even been into Chuck E. Cheese. There's just something about Chuck E. Cheese that children are drawn toward, and mine are no exception. So several years ago, when uh, one of my children was about to have his birthday, I said, uh, what, do you do? what do you want to do with your birthday? We'll go anywhere you want to for your birthday. He said, I want to go to Chuck E. Cheese, have a Chuck E. Cheese birthday party. And inside, I said, oh, looking at that sweet little face and uh, the, those eyes of my son. And I said, okay, we'll go to Chuck E. Cheese. But the, the way that I worked it out was I said to my wife, we'll go to Chuck E. Cheese, let him go for a while. He can, he can play and do all that. But we're not going to have the Chuck E. Cheese birthday party which is really a racket because you, you're paying them for frozen pizza and frozen cake and all of those things. We'll just have the party part when we go home, but we'll have him play with his friends at Chuck E. Cheese. So when we got to Chuck E. Cheese and he was romping around and I was just sitting there trying to do other things and I noticed that I didn't see him. I didn't know where he was. I started looking around and finally I noticed there was a birthday party going on for some other kid in one of these rooms, and there was my son standing behind the cake while everybody's singing happy birthday to this kid. He's just beaming and taking it all in, standing there in front of this guy in a Chuck E. Cheese mouse suit. So I had to go walking on up and kind of lure him to the side and say, this is not your birthday party. Uh, it's my birthday. Yeah, but, you know, this kid's mommy and daddy love him more than your mommy and daddy love you. And they gave him the Chuck E. Cheese party, and we had to just move on over. But the, all the while that everything was going on, he assumed he was the center and that everything was built around him, and it was a crushing disappointment. And as I kind of unpacked that in my mind later on, trying to find out where all I had failed in that process, one of the things that hit me was that really and truly is the core of human hubris and pride. And that core of human hubris and pride shows up in the way that we see the Bible. I mean, left to ourselves, we assume that the center of the narrative of the universe is me, and left to myself, I assume that the center of the Bible and what the Bible is about is about me. Even if it's about something that is good and holy, such as getting me to heaven. But the problem with that 
is that if I see myself as the center, then the project of getting me redeemed means that Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ is a means to an end, which is to deliver me. And so I come into the Bible reading the Bible through that lens, or I stand up and I preach preaching the Bible through that lens. But the problem is that's not the way that the Bible sees itself. The, the Bible sees itself as centering around what God is doing in Jesus Christ, a theme that is repeated over and over again in the Scriptures. Uh, the Apostle Paul will say to the church at Corinth, all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Jesus Christ, their yes and amen. When the apostles are preaching and teaching the scriptures, they are doing so explaining and showing Christ in all of the scriptures. And when the apostle John tells us of Isaiah, he says Isaiah was speaking of Christ because he saw his glory. There is a a centering around Jesus Christ and what Jesus is doing, which is exactly what proves to be so controversial when Jesus comes into the synagogue in this passage that we just read in Luke 4. Jesus stands up and reads a text of Scripture from the Old Testament about the anointing of God, about the coming of the kingdom of God, about that year of jubilee and that year of vindication and that year of glorification. And he says, all of this has been fulfilled in your hearing. It's a very, very difficult thing for the people there to understand. They can understand all the abstract parts of it. But to see how it's fulfilled in this carpenter's son is startling to them. Now, one of the things that is problematic when you start talking about centering preaching around Christ is that there is a sense in which everybody thinks he's a Christ-centered preacher and nobody thinks he's a Christ-centered preacher. Because we tend to think what it means to preach Christ is simply to affix at the end of a sermon a gospel invitation. As long as I have at the very end of that, uh, and by the way, you come to know God through Jesus Christ, then I am preaching Christ. Or we tend to think that Christ-centered preaching is some mystical, difficult thing to do, that you have to have some sort of uh, Jedi skills to be able to do this as you're coming through. And we we think it's something along the lines of uh, the, the red cord there in Rahab that she puts out that represents the blood of Jesus or, or some really, really tangential and, and uh, speculative type of exegesis. But neither of those two things are true. When we're talking about preaching with Christ as the center, there are several things that we keep in mind. The first is that the Bible is a text. It is necessary when you are preaching the Bible to preach the Bible as a unity, as a whole. I mean, that's what we mean when we say that all Scripture is breathed out by God and that men of old wrote as they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. As Peter says, the Spirit of Christ is indicating something within them that there is a divine authorship of the Scripture and that the Scripture comes as a coherent whole. So there's a text there, which means that whenever you are preaching, you are going to be preaching in a context. 
Now, all of us understand that at the microscopic level. So if you stand up in your pulpit and you say, I'm going to preach uh, Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And you stand up and say, what this means is, wives submit to your husbands, husbands submit to your wives. Employees submit to employers, employers submit to employees. Parents submit to children, children submit to parents. You submit to Christ, Christ submits to you. And you come up and say, wait a minute, you're you're misinterpreting Ephesians 5.21. And the preacher says, no, I'm not. That's what Ephesians 5.21 says. Submit yourselves to one another out of reverence for Christ. I'm taking the text on its own terms. And you say, but wait, no, 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 no. Ephesians 5.22 goes on to say, wives, submit to husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Then you move into Ephesians 6. It's children obey parents. Parents don't exasperate children and, and, and so on. Wait, but yeah, but that's later. I'm not going to read in Ephesians 5.22 through 6.4 into Ephesians 5.21. You say, well, you have to. The context of Ephesians 5.21 includes Ephesians 5.22 on down through 6.4. The same thing would be true if you're standing up and you're preaching a series in Ecclesiastes. And you stand up and you preach Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And your interpretation of Ecclesiastes 3 is to say, you know, uh, as you can see here from the biblical text, life really doesn't mean anything. Uh, there's really nothing you can do to get anything out of it. You can try to get wisdom. Wisdom's going to fail you. You can try to get pleasure. Pleasure's going to fail you. And in the end, we're all just dead. Uh, that's not a Christian sermon. And you say, well, I'm, I'm dealing with Ecclesiastes and Ecclesiastes, this chapter of Ecclesiastes on its own terms. No, no, you've got a context of Ecclesiastes that has to inform how you preach Ecclesiastes. If you're preaching through 1 Kings and you come to the example of Solomon, you don't say, some of you young men in this room, your problem is you're not leaders. You're not like Solomon here. Solomon isn't the kind of man that's going to settle himself for one woman. Solomon has got concubine after concubine after concubine. Some of our young men in this congregation don't have the kind of get up and go to go out and assemble the concubines that they would need to have in the way that Solomon does. That would be an unfaithful preaching of the text. Well, why? Because Solomon's life is set in a bigger context of biblical revelation that explains for you what's going on and what the meaning of marriage is and what the meaning of monogamy is and those sorts of things. Now, the same thing is true when you come to the question of what is every part of the Bible about. The scripture is giving you a story that is progressively unfolding and the apostles tell you what that story ultimately is about. That story ultimately is about Jesus Christ. So the unfolding that you see, for instance, in that story of Israel that we have with the calling of Abraham, the calling out of the nation, the establishing of the kings, the prophets as they are being raised up, is ultimately, the Bible says, a story about Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 9, is there of any value 
to be Israel according to the flesh. And he says, yes, theirs are the oracles of God. Theirs is the adoption. And through them comes the Christ who is God blessed over all forever. That's the exact same kind of thing that Paul says to the church at Ephesus when he says there is a mystery that has previously been hidden. I declare that mystery to you. And what is the mystery? That God is uniting, God is summing up all things in Christ, everything under the headship of Christ. So as you're reading through the text of Scripture, you are reading through a story that is foreshadowing something for you about the life of Jesus. The scripture is teaching the people of God, number one, what to look for in a Messiah. So you have certain characteristics that show up, for instance, in the life of David, in the calling of Abraham, that are the sorts of things that that people ought to see in a Messiah. Uh, David, for instance, is someone who defeats his enemies. God puts everything underneath his feet. Solomon has everything underneath his feet and the nations are streaming toward him. But the Old Testament story at the same time is always saying to you, and yet this isn't him. This isn't it. Every single one of these heroic figures in Scripture ultimately is taken down. David is commendable. David is heroic. David winds up in 1 Kings 1, shivering in a bed, being eclipsed by the shadow of death. Solomon has everything under his feet. He is seated on the throne. It seems as though that promise that God has made to David has been finally fulfilled because Solomon, his son, is on the throne. Everything's under his feet, and he has built a house for the Lord. And yet what happens? Solomon is taken down, the nation is ripped in two, the temple ultimately is torn down, and it seems as though all the promises of God are gone. So what happens? The story continues forward, leading you forward toward Bethlehem. So when you are preaching the scriptures, when you're preaching those Old Testament narratives, part of what you are doing is asking Where is this leading us in the story toward Christ? What is this telling me about what God is ultimately doing in the universe, in the life and in the story of Christ? Which means that as you're moving through the text, you see, for instance, the way that Jesus and the apostles use those themes from the story of Israel and apply them directly to Jesus. God says, for instance... Israel, you're a vine. I planted a vine and I expected there to be fruit. But when I come and find this plant, there's no fruit growing on it. It's dead and lifeless and useless. So I'm going to prune it and I'm going to take it up. Now, that's a problem in terms of God's reputation. Because what do the Proverbs tell us? If you see a plot of land that's being covered over with thorns and nettles, what do you see? You don't say something about that land. You say something about the gardener. This is a lazy person who is not keeping his field taken care of. And yet God says, that is what is true of Israel. You're a useless, fruitless vine yielding no fruit. What does Jesus say? I am the vine. You are the branches. 
grafted onto God's vine, and I have appointed you to bear fruit. Scripture speaks of that temple where God is going to reside and where God is going to be with his people so that everybody knows God's with us because there he is, there he is in the temple, and then the temple is torn down, it's built back up. What does Jesus do? He identifies the temple with himself. The temple is pointing you to me. And then at every point in the life of Israel's story, you have people who are sinning against God and God is consistently bailing them out. Well, the question is, why? Why does God keep his promise to Abraham when so many of the individual people involved wind up getting cut off? So the apostles will say, it's not a matter of circumcision because there are a whole lot of people who are circumcised who are dead out there in the desert. It's not a matter simply of ethnic identity because Abraham himself didn't have any ethnic identity when he was first called. That was according to promise. So why does God keep bearing with the people of Israel all the way through? Because all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in him. When you see where God is going in the biblical story, with a crucified and resurrected king, then you see the reason, for instance, why God says to the people of Israel, I want you to, 1 Samuel 15, annihilate all of the Amalekites. Don't leave anything standing. No breath in them, man, woman, child, livestock. Now, how do you preach that? God says... You've got enemies, don't let any of them breathe. We're about to have a time of invitation. We have AK-47s up here. We're going to go out and take on all the unbelievers. No, you don't do that. And why don't you do that? Because what is God doing when he says, slaughter the Amalekites? God says, if the Amalekites are let stand, if the Amalekites are left standing in the land... They are going to wipe you out. Now, what's the problem? If Israel is wiped out by Amalek, then you do not have a rule of David. You do not have a rule of Solomon. You do not have a second temple. And ultimately, you do not have Bethlehem. The people of Israel is the vehicle through whom God is bringing about the Christ who is God blessed over all forever. So when God is saying to Saul, don't let Amalek breathe, that is because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If the Amalekites wipe out the people of Israel, there is no line of Judah There is no house of David, and you and I are in hell right now. You fit the storyline into the broader context of the Bible, which means that you see the way that the New Testament itself pictures what's going on. Sometimes uh, very early on in the history of the church, there was a Jewish uh, anti-Christian apologist named Trypho who said, the problem with the Christians is that the Christians treat the Bible in a way that 
it just doesn't work. For Trifo, the way the Christians were reading the Bible is kind of the way that some people read horoscopes or they talk to psychics. I saw this uh, psychic on television one time doing a call-in thing. And so somebody called in. He said, I'm reading your aura right now. And it seems to me that you're having some difficulty right now in your family. No, no, everything's good. Well, wait a minute. You're, you're having some difficulty in your workplace? Yes, I am. See, so your workplace is like a family, is like a dysfunctional family. And I think there's something or somebody and there's a letter R in there somewhere. There sure is. It has to do with, well... I mean, obviously, he's speaking in such broad terms that could apply to anybody and to any situation. And this person is saying, it's just like you're reading my mind. Trifo said, that's what you all are doing with the Bible. Because you're taking all of these prophecies that don't have anything to do with Jesus, and you're making them uh, have to do with Jesus. He says, for instance, Isaiah 53. He said, you want to point to Isaiah 53 about this suffering servant. He said, but the problem is you don't understand the context of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is not contextually speaking of a future individual. Isaiah 53 is talking about the servant of the Lord and the servant of the Lord is identified as the people of Israel. Justin Martyr, early Christian, says that's exactly right. And that's what we're talking about. When you're talking about the people of Israel, you are talking ultimately about Jesus of Nazareth. That's the reason why Jesus will use this language of Israel to talk about himself. He speaks, for instance, of that language that Ezekiel is using of the nation of Israel. You're going to die. You're going to be buried. And you're going to know that the Lord is with you when you have been raised and you have the Spirit put upon you. That happens. How do you know who's really of Israel and who's been cut off from the covenant promises of God? Well, not all Israel is saved. Only covenant-keeping Israel is saved. The ones who are not lawbreakers are the ones who are saved. Everyone else is winnowed out in judgment. So how do you know whether or not you're under the judgment of God? Well, you die under the curse of God. And how do you know whether you're under the curse of God? You die. And every single human being winds up with a gravestone. A sinner, a sinner, a sinner, a sinner, a lawbreaker, a lawbreaker, a lawbreaker, a lawbreaker, a lawbreaker, except for one who takes the curse of God upon himself, is under the curse of death, and then walks out into the sunlight, anointed with the Spirit of God, and pours that Spirit out upon his brothers and sisters who form his church and who form his new community. He takes that language speaking of Israel because he is the faithful Israel of God. If you're not keeping that in context as you move through preaching the Bible, you're going to wind up with a misunderstanding and a misappropriation of the text. But it's also true because the Bible tells us that the mystery of Christ doesn't just explain the whole text of Scripture. The mystery of Christ explains everything. Everything is created through him. Everything is created 
for him, and in him everything holds together. That's the reason why the Apostle Paul, going back to Ephesians 5, stands up and says, he cites Genesis chapter 2, and he says, a man shall leave father and mother, cleave to one another, and they shall become one flesh. That's in Genesis 2, we know that's true. We don't know why that is. We also know that's true in every human culture. There is a drive toward sexual marital union. Cultures differ in all sorts of ways. People do one thing in one culture, another thing in another culture. But there's never been a culture or a people group in the history of the world who have ever died out because they forgot to have sex. There's a drive that is present in human beings accessible to all people, and it's a powerful drive toward procreation. The question is, why? Paul says, I can tell you why. The mystery is this. This refers to Christ and the church. Now, what's Paul doing? He's not saying, oh, this isn't about marriage. It's really just metaphorical of Christ and the church. So, just understand we're talking about Christ and the church and then do whatever you want to when it comes to your marriages. No, 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 no. He says, your marriage works a certain way. This is what's pleasing to God. But the reason that God designed the marriage, the reason that God designed us male and female rather than just subdividing like amoeba, is because he is picturing in that marital union the union between Christ and his church. So when you see that power and that danger that exists in the marital union, God is embedding a picture of what the mystery of Christ is like. And when you reflect upon the mystery of Christ, Christ and his gospel, you see more clearly the meaning of what a marriage ought to look like. So that that man who is caring for his wife with Alzheimer's disease, who doesn't even recognize him anymore, but he's faithfully keeping his vows, is somebody who is picturing something that is at the core of the very meaning of the universe, a Christ who is faithful to his church. A couple who are at the point of divorcing where the church comes in and intervenes and that couple is reconciled. You are seeing a picture of a Christ and a church inseparable in their union. God's built the whole universe around that reality and that is true everywhere as we look in the scriptures. Now, why is this important? It's important because the Apostle Paul says, I preach Christ and Him crucified. Only Christ and Him crucified. And you say, well, wait a minute. Is that really true? Paul talks about Christ and Him crucified, but Paul talks about all sorts of other things too. Paul talks about marriage. Paul talks about child rearing. Paul talks about meat offered to idols. Paul talks about spiritual gifts. Paul talks about church government. Paul talks about anxiety. Paul talks about discouragement. Paul talks about joy. Paul talks about a whole category of subjects. He doesn't only talk about Christ and Him crucified. But Paul says he only preaches Christ and Him crucified. Why? Because everything that he is talking about has to do with Christ and Him crucified. You only understand all of this other stuff in light of Jesus, 
the cross, the empty tomb, and the gospel. So when you're preaching, if the context isn't that mystery of Christ in his gospel, you are misunderstanding the text. Now, here's why that's important. It's not enough to be an expository preacher. Meaning, I'm going to take a section of text and I'm just going to run through that text. There are a lot of people who do that sort of thing and really what they're doing is just compiling commentary notes for their people. I'm going to go through and I've got, this is what Carson says, this is what Morris says, this is what this Bible dictionary says. I'm just going to synthesize it all together. I'm going to give it to you. Now you've got it. And here's your expository preaching. It's not enough just to go through the text of the Scripture. You have to get at what the Scripture is about. The devil is an expository preacher. When the devil is with Jesus in the wilderness, as he is tempting him for 40 days and for 40 nights, the devil preaches the Scriptures. He says... Cast yourself off the pinnacle of the temple because the Psalms say, my anointed one I will not allow to dash his his feet against the rocks. He's accurately expounding the scriptures. says nothing there that is not untruthful except that he wants to apply that text by bypassing the cross. Throw yourself right now and you will be Vindicated. Now, notice what Jesus does in the temptations. Jesus preaches back. But Jesus doesn't simply have scriptures that he's memorized. We, we will often say, when you're tempted, do like Jesus did. He had scriptures memorized and he repeated them back. Yeah, but he didn't have concordant scriptures. This isn't like the back of the Gideon Bible. When you're frustrated, here's a Bible verse. When... An evil spirit shows up and asks you to turn rocks into bread. Here's a verse that you say. It's not like that at all. Jesus instead gives scripture references that demonstrate that he knows what the storyline of the Bible is. After all, where is Jesus? He's in the wilderness. How long is he in the wilderness? For 40 days and 40 nights. Where do you see that before? When the people of Israel are led through the water, as Jesus was, right out into the wilderness for 40 years, and what happens to them? They're tempted to say, God doesn't care about us. God doesn't love us. God doesn't give us any bread. Instead, we're out here with all of these rocks. We're going to starve to death. It would be better to be back there with Pharaoh. We're not protected. God isn't with us anymore. God's just brought us out here to die. We don't have any sign that God is really going to be with us. And at every one of those points, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8 with a whole context around it. I made you to hunger so that you would know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. He sees the big picture of what is happening and he refuses to allow the devil to use the scripture apart from the mediation of the cross. Every one of those things that the devil mentions are good. It's good for Jesus to eat bread. He says, I will eat bread with you in the kingdom of my father. It is good for Jesus to be publicly vindicated before everybody with angels surrounding him. 
And that's exactly what happens in Revelation chapter 19. It is good for Jesus to receive all of the kingdoms of the earth. But he receives them by offering himself up in crucifixion and being raised by the power of his Father. Now, if you come to a biblical text and you abstract that biblical text from the gospel, you can preach in a way that is very easily satanic. How often do you hear people who will come, for instance, to the Psalms, where the psalmist says, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not sacrificed to idols. And stand up and say, we're coming to worship today, everybody. Uh, But we need to make sure that when we come to worship, we're coming with clean hands and a pure heart before we can ascend to the hill of the Lord. I want us to take a couple of minutes of silence here. And I want you to see to it that that you're working on, on purifying your heart and cleaning your hands. Now, what's the problem there? The problem is that in the last little pause that I just had, every single one of us in here sinned enough to condemn us to hell forever. And you say, I don't know what you're doing up there, but I'm just sitting here listening to you. Well, yeah, but what is sin? Sin is any deviation from the law of God. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. None of us in this room, in the last little nanosecond pause, were loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and our neighbor as ourself. If you take that psalm and bypass the gospel, you are creating people in your pews and seats who are able to say, now I have clean hands and a pure heart because I've worked through all the ugliness inside of me, so now I can come before God and worship. Oh, no, you can't. Oh, no, you can't. You are creating publicans or rather Pharisees, who are standing up and saying, thank you that I am not like those publicans. Instead, what do you have to do? You have to say, who can stand before God? Only the one who has clean hands, pure heart, who has not sacrificed to idols. Who is that? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is only one among us who can stand before God saying, I have clean hands, I have a pure heart, I have never sacrificed to idols. Every single one of us here are being blackmailed by the satanic powers because they all have the goods on us. You're a fornicator. You're a thief. You're a liar. You're covetous. And with the law of God able to show why you are not fit to be in the presence of God. What does Jesus do? Jesus stands before God so that when we are hidden in Christ, we now stand before God with everything that is true of Jesus being true of us. You don't apply that psalm directly to your people. You apply that psalm to your people through a mediator who is Jesus Christ. In the same way that you don't apply to your people Psalm 23. I, you prepare a table for me in the midst of my enemies. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's true. That's true. But why is that true of you? It is true of you because you are anointed in 
Christ. You're found in Christ. When you come to that that powerful section in Zephaniah, where God says, I sing over you with rejoicing. That's true. But that is not true of your people or of you outside of Christ. It is only true of you as you are hidden in Christ. And you can see this kind of impulse toward moving from the text and bypassing Jesus to get directly to us in all sorts of ways. You can see it in VeggieTales kind of preaching. Uh, you think about what uh, happened with the VeggieTales series several years ago. You had Bible characters that were put in vegetable form, and they are doing little morality plays, and you're told, do these sorts of things. You, you do this, and you will be like these characters. Problem is, there's never any blood in the VeggieTales. Nobody ever pickles that cucumber, you know, in persecution. Nobody's slicing that tomato apart, Julianne, under torment and persecution. That doesn't happen. That would be disturbing to children. And one of the things that would be most disturbing to children is a man being crucified. So you eliminate that, and instead you talk about the things that children can understand, which is morality and values. The problem is, though, the devil doesn't mind morality and values. He's willing to give to Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world. I will give them to you, he says. That means you don't have abortion anymore in a world that is ruled by Jesus of Nazareth. You don't have no-fault divorce anymore. You don't have torture anymore. You don't have malaria anymore. You don't have kids dying of diarrhea and depletion of, of nutrients anymore. You don't have immorality going on anymore. But what do you have? A world still under accusation, still under condemnation. Devil doesn't mind morality. What he minds is the cross and what he minds is the Spirit of God that comes through the gospel. It's very easy to do the exact same thing that the VeggieTales tried to do with children with everybody. Simply stand up and say, Moses was courageous, you be courageous. David was, was powerful, you be powerful. Solomon was wise, you be wise. And there are all of those things that are there for us to see and to emulate that the Scripture commends, but only within the context of recognizing Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, and he wound up dead. He wound up with his children ripping his kingdom apart. Behold, one greater than Solomon is here. And then you can see that also in what happens with the temptation toward a prosperity gospel. Turn on TBN. And you see people who are taking the Old Testament and applying the Old Testament directly to people apart from Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Joyce Meyer, Kenneth Copeland, all of these figures will come in and preach from Deuteronomy most, most often and say, look at what's happening in Deuteronomy. If you're obedient, God's going to bless you. And He's going to bless you with material prosperity, and He's going to bless you with length of life. If you're disobedient, God's going to curse you. 
And he's going to curse you by taking away your prosperity and taking away your physical health. All that is completely true. To this point, they are completely accurate. And the Bible does indeed teach a prosperity gospel of health and wealth. But if you stand up and apply that directly to your people and bypass Jesus, you are actually condemning them. God blesses obedience. Yes, he does. And he blesses it with prosperity and he blesses it with with length of life. As a matter of fact, everlasting life. But that's not true of any of us in and of ourselves. God has blessed Jesus Christ. He has raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the Father, and he has given him everything as an inheritance. If you don't have that context and you simply stand up and read Deuteronomy and say... If you want to know whether or not God's with you, look at your bank account. People love to hear that. They love to hear that because we want to have some kind of a tangible sign that God is with us. If I can see that because I'm doing better financially, then I can have confidence that God is with me. If I can see that because I don't have cancer, then that means God is with me. The problem is every single one of us is going to wind up a skeleton, including Joyce Meyer and Kenneth Copeland and Gloria Copeland. Every single one of us winds up succumbing to death and we don't have a bank account anymore and we don't have health anymore. Why? Because we're sinners. The question of whether or not God is favorable toward us isn't seen in this present moment of suffering, Romans 8, for a little while. It is seen by saying, my life is hidden at the right hand of God and he's doing just fine. His bank account is fine. His future is fine, and I'm hidden and I'm found in Him. That can happen easily, even for people who don't hold to a health and wealth prosperity gospel who can preach as though they do. Standing up and saying, if you want to know whether or not God is with you, then look for the external blessing in your life rather than looking to Christ. The whole point of moving through and interpreting the Scripture before you, uh, before you preach it, is to say, how does this fit in the story of the gospel? And then how do I apply that to those people? So that when we're centering our interpretation around Christ, it doesn't just mean that we're, that we're doing the interpretation there or the, the uh, proclamation there. It also means that that's the way that we're illustrating and the way that we're applying. Notice what's, notice what's happening. Jesus stands up and says, today this scripture has been fulfilled among you. And the people start, I don't know what's going on here. Isn't isn't this Joseph's son? Jesus immediately moves into illustrating. And why does Jesus illustrate? Jesus illustrates because they're not offended enough. The point of an illustration is not to remove offense... The point of the illustration is to heighten the offense where there is an offense there so that people actually understand what you're saying. Jesus uses an illustration that causes the people to become infuriated because he gives them examples of God using those who are outside of the people of God, Gentiles, for his purposes. People are outraged by that. Who does this guy think he is? And then he turns around and he applies it directly to them in a way that causes them to see what's at stake. That's what you're doing when you're illustrating and when you're applying. 
Because why? All of us have this sinful built-in resistance to the Word of God where we are trying to find the ways that we can escape what the meaning of the text is as it applies to whatever I'm protecting. So when I'm standing there and, and preparing to preach, the main thing that I'm wanting to do as I'm reading through and studying that text is to say, what part of this text do I not believe? I say, well, I believe all of it. Yeah, I believe all of it intellectually. But something in me is kicking against this text. So that I'm sitting there and I'm reading through the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm putting little asterisks in there. In the same way that a feminist does when she's reading 1 Timothy 2. Well, obviously, it can't mean I don't permit a woman to teach her to exercise authority over a man. So it must mean this. Well, obviously, Jesus doesn't mean if you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. So it must mean something else. I put my little asterisk in there to try to find my way to evade the text. The point of illustration is to come in and say, let me tell you exactly what I'm talking about in such a way that you will sense whatever it is that you're protecting from this will be blown out of the way. That's, that's why Nathan, for instance comes before David and he tells him the story about the sheep, the ewe lamb. He doesn't do that because that's good communication technique. He does that because David's not going to hear him unless he gets behind his defenses to show him what it is he's talking about. And then he turns around with application to say, you are the man. All of us are doing that as we're preaching. We're showing how Jesus has received this promise, whatever the promise is that God is giving. We're showing how Jesus has taken upon himself this curse, whatever the curse and the warning is that is there. And we are saying, you must be found in him in order to walk in the spirit and to live this life, or you will be cut off. And we're saying, here are all the ways that we try to avoid that. And we try to hold on to our own lives rather than to surrender our lives to the way that the Spirit lives out the life of Christ within us. It, it means not that you're standing up and preaching the same thing over and over again. And that's what some people assume when they think you're preaching the gospel in every text, you're preaching Jesus in every text. That means that every text you stand up and you tell uh, the same story. No, 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 no. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the mystery of Christ, is so deep and complex, it hits upon every area of reality. Your anxiety has to do with how you view the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your envy has to do with how you uh, believe the gospel of Jesus Christ or not. Your fearfulness has to do with how you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ or not. Your fornication has to do with whether or not you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. This informs all of those things and you have the interpretive key given to you in the New Testament that shining backward demonstrates and shows the whole thing and then shining forward makes sense of your life and every aspect of your life. I've never seen this movie that came out probably, what, 20 years ago? The Sixth Sense, M. Night Shyamalan movie. I've never seen it because it was spoiled for me at the time by somebody who went and saw it. I mean, the, the whole point of the movie is you have this little kid who sees dead people. And you have Bruce Willis who was there as a detective trying to figure out what's going on. 
And at the end, the sudden surprise is that Bruce Willis's character himself is dead. He's a ghost. The little boy's seeing him all the way through. So if you haven't seen The Sixth Sense, don't bother watching it now. I've already told you what it is. Uh, but the whole reason I haven't watched it is because that's the whole point, is you move through this movie, and then at the very end, you've got the clue that, ah, that's why. If you notice... Nobody ever talks directly to Bruce Willis except for that little kid. I didn't notice that at the time. Now I do because I know the ending. That's what happens with the reading of the scripture. Oh, okay. Uh Aha, I see this now. This is why God is protecting the people of Israel from famine. He's, He's bringing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why David goes through the things that David goes through so that he can say, I can count all of my bones. Even the one who ate bread with me has betrayed me because God is preparing another story that's going to come along later on. This is why all of those themes are present in Scripture. Here's where they come to an end in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not preaching the same thing every time. That is understanding the mystery and the meaning of reality itself. All right, I think we might have time for a couple of questions. Uh, obviously, not everybody is on board. There is some right. about uh, Two questions that run together. What would you say to those who are critical of this uh, methodology? Yeah. Number one, I can't understand why there's opposition to it. Maybe you can parse that a little bit. But also, they see, some critics see it as antithetical to the authorial intent how do you respond to that criticism that, that Moses didn't intend this and, and so on and so forth? How do you respond to those things? Well, uh, a, couple of, a couple of things. One thing is I think a lot of people are opposed to Christ-centered preaching because they've not seen it done uh, at all. Uh, and because they fear that what happens is the exact sort of thing that we mentioned here or we mentioned over here a few minutes ago, where you're, you're trying to strain to see Jesus. What I'm saying is you don't have to strain to see Jesus. Jesus defines for you uh, what is Christ-shaped and what is not Christ-shaped in, in the Scriptures. Uh, and so you're, you're reading the Bible as a text. You're able to understand the Bible as a text. And it's centered around the story of Christ. I think the other thing is, when you come to this issue of authorial intention, as evangelical Christians, we believe that you have two authors of every passage of Scripture uh, in, in the Bible. You have a human author, and you have a Holy Spirit who is carrying that author along. Peter tells us in 2 Peter that those men of old were searching to see what the Spirit was indicating within them about the sufferings of Christ and the glories to come. They're writing as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. They don't understand the full picture of the story because they haven't seen it yet. That's what Hebrews chapter 11 uh, tells us. They saw it from afar, but they, they weren't welcomed into it. They all died in, all of them died in faith. And so I think that is a a critical issue. But the issue is, how does the Bible deal with this? I mean, think about in Matthew. Jesus is taken by Joseph into Egypt after Herod's persecution. In order that the Scripture might be fulfilled, out of Egypt, I called my son. And you look at that and you say, okay, where is that in the Old Testament? Go to Hosea. You read Hosea. Hosea's not talking about a future prophecy. What's Hosea talking about? 
Hosea is talking about looking backward to Israel being carried out of Egypt. Out of Egypt I have called my son. God calls Israel the son of God in the text of Exodus. Matthew says that's talking about Jesus. In the same way, you go in the gospel writers further on and you have the scripture being fulfilled. They uh, gambled over my clothing. Is that a future prophecy in the Old Testament? No, it's a reference in Psalms to the life of David. I thirst to fulfill the scriptures. Something that happens in the life of David. I can count all of my bones. You go back and you say, wait a minute, wait, wait, what's going on in the psalm there? David is talking about his time of persecution that we have in the context of what's going on with the rebellion of Absalom. The scripture being fulfilled, those references to Judas are not referring to some future looking forward. They're referring to the betrayal of Ahithophel. But what's happening? That's exactly what the apostles are saying. The life of Israel is fulfilled in Christ. The life of David is fulfilled in Christ. All of these things were shadows of what ultimately is to come. He lives out that life. He carries out that curse in all of its complexities. So when it comes to the question of the, uh, the intention of the author, you have to say, well, yes, you have the intention of the author of the scriptures, God, who is breathing out the scriptures by his spirit. There are all sorts of other things that the human authors see partially and they don't understand. John says, Isaiah spoke of him because he saw his glory. Do we assume that Isaiah is saying, Jesus of Nazareth, second person of the Trinity, born in Bethlehem, Gospel of John's coming, just wait for it, it's here. No, 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 no. He sees the glory of God. He writes of the glory of God. He writes of the sufferings of the servant to come. And he doesn't necessarily see how all of those things fit together in the mystery of Christ. God does, though. And God is superintending and breathing out that scripture. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think when, when it comes to preaching, one of the things that you're, you're trying to do is to deal simultaneously with details and also with the big picture. You have to have both of those two things together. And that means you're making a judgment call. I mean, think of what Alistair Begg did yesterday. You have to decide. Am I going to spend a lot of time here on who Simon the leper is? Am I going to have to spend a lot of time here on what pure nard is? Uh, those sorts of things. And a lot of that is a judgment call to say how much of the details here are going to be necessary for my people to understand what's happening. I think that the temptation is often we eclipse the big picture with a lot of minutiae. And most of that minutiae has to do with biblical backgrounds uh, because that's easy to do. You can go and you can find out. And some of that is important. I mean, some of that is helpful. If you understand what the water system in Laodicea is, is about, I mean, that, that can be helpful and that can be illustrative. But sometimes it can be terribly distracting to the Word of God because what you can give your people the impression of 
is unless you know all of this archaeology and uh, ancient Near Eastern history and all of these things that I've cobbled together, you can't really understand what the Bible is about. Uh, And you can do the same thing when you do these extensive word studies uh, where you can give people the impression, unless you know Greek and Hebrew, you don't really have the Bible. You've just got some kind of a little a little commentary on the Bible. I really know the Bible. And you wind up with a type of, of priestcraft that is, is, uh, is dangerous. With Ruth, what do you have to do? You have to go in and you have to say, what in the details here am I explaining so that people can understand and know the story of Ruth? And you do have to deal with the kinds of questions that are going to come up. Now, wait a minute. Ruth and Boaz hanging out together in the barn, is that really the right thing we ought to be doing? Uh, you need to deal with those issues. At the same time that you deal with the bigger story of where Ruth is going. I mean, where, where does Ruth end? Ruth ends with the fact that you have a baby being born uh, of the house of David, and that's where the hope is coming in of God saving not only the people of Israel, but in order to do that, he chooses a Moabite woman and brings her into the story of Jesus, even as he expands that story out to include Moabites and Ethiopians and Spaniards and, and all the rest of us into it. Yes? Uh huh. Would you be willing to take one sermon and talk about that historically what's happening, what God's doing with Israel, and then take another sermon next week and do it at Christ time? Do it between two different sermons looking from two different angles? Um, well, I think you, you could do that, but the problem is in order to really understand what God is doing with Israel, you have to understand the bigger, the bigger picture. So I wouldn't routinely do that. I think I could think of some examples of where I, where I might do it a time or two, but that wouldn't be something routinely that I would do. Any more than I would do that, I mean, what you're doing with the history of Israel, keep in mind, is the same thing you're doing with the individual story of the person. Jesus... Jesus' life is pictured ahead of time in the life of Israel, prophets, kings, institutions. Jesus' life is pictured in the aftermath in the life of believers. So what's happening to you? You are taking up a cross, you are being crucified, and you are being conformed to the image of Christ, raised to newness of life. Now, so what do you do? You, You deal not only with that big picture, you also deal with the specifics uh, what's happening to you? Um, you're going through a very dark time right now. You, you've got cancer. Uh, your, your kids are prodigals. You've lost your job. You don't have any health insurance. I don't know all the specific of, uh, specifics of what's happening, but I know this. You're in Christ, so God is working your story to conform your story to the story of Jesus so that you could be conformed to his image. You're suffering with him now so that you may be glorified with him. You deal with the specifics, but you see those specifics in light of the big picture of what's happening. I think you teach people and train people how to do that as they're moving through the text of Scripture itself. All right. What'd you think? Just so you know, I did take out some of the questions, uh, especially the ones that were very technical uh, regarding their answers. I would try to stick to the uh, answers and the questions that dealt with the overarching themes, not some of the more nuts and bolts stuff that you would expect if you were a a pastor. (laughs) So just so you know that there was a couple of questions that I did take out just because they were very technical and I didn't think they quite fit with what I'm trying to accomplish with this lecture here. And that is to show you that there really is a way in which 
a pastor ought to be preaching Christ from every text. And I think um, Russell Moore did a fantastic job, and I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. And follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till Monday, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. 